And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Powley. Uh, well, we are getting around to today's topic just a little bit late because it has been almost a month, can you believe it, since the release of the new edition of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I assume by now you have your copy or have at least consulted with a mental health professional who has one. I mean, how else are you going to know if you have social communication disorder or binge eating disorder or trichotillomania, the nervous tendency to pull your hair out, or Asperger's for that matter? Actually, uh, Asperger's has been dropped from the latest version of the DSM. Its symptoms are now lumped under something called autism spectrum disorder. On the other hand, a bunch of new entries have made the list, like hoarding disorder, hypersexual disorder, and caffeine withdrawal. That, my friends, is how it goes with the DSM. It has remapped the landscape of mental malfunction many times over in the 60 years since its first edition. It's been called the Bible of Psychiatry, but Bibles, you know, aren't supposed to change. And the shifting standards that have made the DSM a perpetual work in progress have not exactly inspired faith inside or outside the mental health community. There are a lot of doubters out there, and one of them is my guest today, Gary Greenberg. He's an eloquent and pointed critic of the DSM who doesn't just challenge the particular categories in the book, but rather the whole business of classifying behavioral and psychological problems as though they were scientifically understood conditions. Gary says that the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry has less to do with any deep understanding of mental illness and a whole lot to do with evolving social attitudes, professional interests, politics, and money. He lays out those charges in his new book. It's entitled The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. It describes the tangled history of the DSM and the equally tangled creation of its latest edition, the fifth. Well, fortunately, Gary Greenberg did not take the fifth when I questioned him, as you'll hear in the hour ahead. Gary, you are yourself a psychotherapist. Yes. What variety? Uh, you know, I work with the worried well, mostly. But you are not a psychiatrist. No, no, no. A psychiatrist has a medical degree. I have a Ph.D. You know, I think a lot of the world, though this distinction is very old, still hasn't caught on to the fact that a psychologist or a psychotherapist like you and a psychiatrist are two very different things. No, they haven't, although increasingly, and, and you know, there was a reason for that years ago. It used to be that a psychiatrist was a therapist who could also prescribe drugs. Uh-huh. Now a psychiatrist is somebody who prescribes drugs. <laughs> and, and in rare cases, uh, and much to their financial detriment, provide psychotherapy. But, but you're saying that the majority of psychiatrists, these are folks who have a specialty attached to their medical degree, do not put people on a couch or a chair and talk to them for an hour. Not anymore, no. no. Those days are gone, uh, and there are still some people who do it. Uh, they're mostly older, and they're mostly, like I say, making financial sacrifices in order to do it. Whereas psychologists and other kinds of therapists... Yeah, social workers, counselors, marriage family therapists, yep. You guys do a lot of talking or maybe some other forms of interaction with uh, patients or clients, as you prefer to call them sometimes, but you do not prescribe drugs or other medical interventions? No. Uh, there are a few states in the country where Ph.D. psychologists can prescribe drugs, but not where I live. And um, even in those states, many psychologists choose not to uh, take that path. Now, uh, I should disclose right away that I am the son of two therapists, one a Ph.D. psychologist, the other a clinical social worker. And you survived. <laughs> Who says? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm going on the evidence here. <laughs> well, I'm not suffering from, what is it called, trich... Trichotillomania? I'm not suffering from trichotillomania. Yes, but but are, you, are you suffering from post-therapist childhood disorder? Oh, is that in the book? Well, it should be. <laughs> There's actually, somebody wrote a book called, um, you know, Children of Psychiatrists, uh, or, yeah, something like that, describing the particular problems that children of psychiatrists have. Well, I, I'm not a child of a psychiatrist, no, and of course I grew up keenly aware of the distinction because both my parents were subject to uh, the rules of the game that you know very well. They 
could do therapy, which they did, but when it came to, for instance, billing insurance companies, uh, especially my father, a psychologist in the state of Michigan, had to work through psychiatrists who had to essentially sign off on his diagnoses. They both had to use the DSM for that purpose. Uh, people who were hoping to bill their therapy to their insurance company would need a code from this manual from the uh, American Psychiatric Association. You had to submit a code, and then you might get reimbursed by the insurance company. So though neither of them, I just called them both yesterday to check up on this, neither of them really believed in or used the DSM to understand afflictions in most cases. They both had to use it to get by. Nobody uses the DSM to understand uh, mental afflictions, including psychiatrists. Well, they didn't even, my parents didn't even use it to identify afflictions uh, mm -hmm. except when necessary, you know, for bureaucratic reasons, and in cases where they really felt there was extreme psychosis or something, and they'd refer the person on to, uh, you know, a psychiatrist. But, yeah, but what I'm trying to say is yeah. that the psychiatrists are more or less the same. Look, I talked to the president of the American Psychiatric Association for my book, a yeah. former president. I talked to a number of them, and I asked many people, how do you use the DSM? How is it valuable to you? And nobody said anything about using it for anything other than bureaucratic purposes. So, so I had this little conversation with this guy, and I, I asked him this question, and he said, uh, he told me a story about diagnosing a woman with obsessive-compulsive disorder uh, because his secretary told him it was time to give a diagnosis, and he seemed sort of proud of himself for coming to this conclusion that that's what she had. And then I said, yeah, but how did it change what you did with her? And he said, the only difference it made is I got paid. <laughs> so so there's, there's an incredible amount of cynicism out there, so much so that um, even the people who defend the DSM, the, the, the most ardent defenders of it, uh, you know, they damn it with faint praise. They talk about it as a kind of a necessary evil, something that they don't have much confidence in, that they don't like very much that they know is only there for instrumental purposes, um, as particularly when you in the, in the clinic. And uh, so, you know, this is just, it's a, it's a universally, uh, it's, a, it's a universal cynicism. Well, universal cynicism, and yet you're not denying that it has a huge impact on uh, the way people are treated, right? Your book lists example after example of how legitimizing you know, a condition in the DSM, in this psychiatric manual, a condition like, say, ADHD, opens the way to authorize treatments like Ritalin, let's say. It opens the way to uh, medical coverage for the condition. It gives people a new way of looking at themselves that may transform their whole sense of identity. Uh, it may end up, you know, sending them in a, down a road that leads to a lot of drugs or other kinds of treatments. So it has a huge impact, right? Yeah, so no question about it. I mean, there's, there's the, the interesting and disturbing disconnect between how influential and important the document is and how uh, poorly founded it is, you know, how shaky its foundation and, and how widely known, if not universally, uh, that shakiness is. Um, people listening would be um, would be justified in thinking that you and I are kind of a stacked jury here. I mean, here I am, the son of two psychotherapists who were not psychiatrists and who had a you know <laughs> very dubious relationship with DSM. And you, if anybody cares to look at your book, will find out that you're deeply hostile to this volume or these volumes. Why should they believe us? <laughs> well, I'm going to try to play the role of neutral uh, interrogator here uh, and do my best to challenge every now and then what you say. But you yourself... Well, I can't, I can't, I can't tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yourself start out... Did it, didn't you read the review that called, said I have narcissistic personality disorder? Uh, you know, I did because you mentioned it in your blog. I read your blog, saw that reference, looked it up, and I didn't think the guy was serious. He was saying that both you and another author, a very different uh, author, a... Um, is he a neuropsychiatrist? Yeah, yes. yeah, he's attacking the DSM from the other, the exact opposite angle. Yeah. Uh, he says it's not scientific enough and it should be ent entirely scientific. You are saying that there is no scientific basis for these kinds of maladies, and we make a huge mistake when we try to medicalize them as though they are the same as, let's say, a flu infection. Yes, that, that's a fair synopsis. But I, I didn't think he was actually accusing you of being a narcissist. He's just pointing out the fact that both you guys um, 
make your arguments with a great deal of, uh, well, shall we say, confidence, self-confidence? Panache. Panache. Yes, which is true. But he wasn't really calling you a narcissist. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> but, but by the way, narcissistic personality disorder, is that in the DSM, the current one? Just barely hanging on by its fingers. Because that one's really old. I mean, it was, wasn't it Freud himself who used the well, mythological Freud, Freud figure? Well, Freud was the one who, who uh, you know, latched onto the narcissist myth as yeah. a way of explaining a certain kind of personality type. Uh, and then that, that uh, was ex- expanded upon by Freudians throughout the 20th century. Uh, and, and, in fact, the personality disorders in general, which are ten different personality disorders in the DSM, are all uh, indebted to the Freudian legacy. They're the last vestige of Freud in the DSM, and, and uh, probably for just that reason, there was an attempt to get rid of them or at least really change them radically for the new, for the DSM-5. Yeah, we should say that's the, the brand spanking new version that just hit the bookshelves, right? Yes, on May 22nd. But you spent several years tracking its creation. Uh, years I will never get back, I want to point out. Yeah, your book, The Book of Woe, which is your derogatory term for the DSM, uh, uh, is, is the, in large part the story of you sort of embedding in the DSM creation process committees of psychiatrists, you know, scoping out and writing this massive volume. You did tons of interviews. You attended, I, I'm sure, countless meetings uh, to track it. Now, you didn't go in, uh, as we've already sort of indicated, uh, a neutral observer. You're already deeply hostile toward this, this history and this project. And you sort of admit that uh, right off the bat in your, um, in your introduction, where you start talking about an old condition that predates the DSM called drapetomania? Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably drapetomania, but nobody knows because nobody knows how the ancient Greeks really sounded because they, they didn't leave behind their MP3s. They took them with them. Well, tell us about uh, drapetomania. Drapetomania was the invention of a, of a doctor in Louisiana. It's the condition which, uh, theoretically anyway, causes um, slaves to run away. It, it dra- Drapetes uh, is a runaway slave, and mania is mania, and it was the mania to run away. Uh, and the idea here is that <clears throat> when slaves want to run away, abscond from service, as uh, Dr. Cartwright put it, um, it is an indication of something wrong with them. And in order to say that, you have to assume, as Dr. Cartwright did, that naturally speaking, a functional person of the African race, as he would put it, uh, is somebody who wants to be a slave or at least doesn't mind, and that to the extent that they want to run away from service, there's something wrong with them. That's the pathology. And so he developed some, loosely speaking, diagnostic criteria, and he um, codified this, partly, I think, to um, say to abolitionists up north, hey, you guys, you don't understand, this thirst for freedom isn't about equality and justice, it's about illness. And uh, you admit that this might be perceived as and might actually be a cheap shot, setting this up at the opening of your book and implying that, though maybe it's not as blatant as it used to be, that we are still medicalizing kind of social friction, a bad fit between a person and his or her circumstances, which might be totally understandable, and, and maybe it shouldn't be treated as a pathology, right? Right. It's a way of distracting from that poor fit that you just mentioned is to locate the problem within the individual as opposed to in that uh, in that interface. And as society changes and our idea of what normal behavior and well-adjusted behavior changes, so too does our definition of mental disorder, mental disease change. That's right. Psychopathology has to reflect ideology. And there's no way around it. The ideas of human nature have to reflect ideology. That's why they're generally not worth the paper they're written on, uh, except as documents of who we think we are and who we want to be. Well, is there something to be said for that, though? I mean, in order to get along in life and be happy, you do have to make some adjustments to other human beings. And if you can't make them, should there be a profession that helps you make them? Absolutely. Yes. I have nothing against the mental health professions. And in fact, I'm not sure I'm so much hostile to the DSM. I mean, I am in some ways, as, <laughs> as skeptical of it. In other words, I I really think the problem is uh, transparency. Look, the the DSM, we haven't got to this, but I'll say it now, and maybe we'll come back to it, but 
the DSM is the best attempt that doctors, and I mean medical doctors, can make to understanding mental uh, disorder in medical terms. Because we expect medical disorders to be understood as biological phenomena, the suffering that doctors treat tends to be suffering that has a biological cause and hopefully, uh, you know, a, a target for drugs or other treatments. But psychiatry doesn't have any of those, never has, and maybe it will someday, but for the moment it doesn't. So there's been this attempt to medicalize suffering without any of that, and that means that it's purely rhetorical. It's all in language. And so when psychiatrists set out to do that, they are, on the one hand, doing something good. That, you know, they're, they're doing what uh, my grandmother would have called the mitzvah. Um, they're really trying hard to provide a framework for understanding suffering. But on the other hand, they're trapped as trapped in the system as everybody else. And in this system, the best way to get health care resources is to say that you have a medical disease. So they're trying to help by doing this. Now, the mental health professions also uh, try to provide treatments that don't have anything to do with medicine. I mean, that's what your parents did. That's what I do. I mean, what I do in my daily practice has very little, if anything, to do with medicine. But in order to gain legitimacy and authority and the right to practice and all the stuff that comes along with having a profession, we sort of have to subscribe to that model. Mm-hmm. If we look at some of the more controversial disorders that have made their way into and out of various versions of the DSM, we can look back to the era pre-1973, I guess before the uh, DSM-4, is that right? In 1973, the, the controlling document was the DSM-2, okay. and the DSM-3 came in 1980. Okay, so prior to uh, DSM-3, homosexuality was a mental disorder. Yeah, well, actually what happened was the, 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 the kerfuffle over homosexuality was so intense and so destructive that they didn't wait for DSM-3. They actually deleted it from DSM-2 and, you know, basically sent around a, a circular saying, saying uh, you guys that have the DSM-2, take a look at this and cross that out. Uh, and this was a result of gay activists saying, we're tired of being called crazy. Yeah, well, yes, it was, and, and, and you know, that was, was also part of the sexual revolution and, you know, the general explosion of American conformist culture in the 1960s. So there were many factors that went into it, but yes, that was the result, um, was that the, the American Psychiatric Association was essentially bombarded with uh, protest um, and disrupted by protest, and it really was tearing apart the profession, in part because... You know, there was just this fight, and there were these people, including gay psychiatrists, who wanted the diagnosis gone, but in part because having that fight woke up this, this slumbering beast that has stalked psychiatry since 1850, which is that it's impossible to say what a mental illness is. And therefore, it's impossible to say whether drapetomania or homosexuality is really a disease. So when, when this fight happened, it was clear that it was mostly political. It wasn't scientific. How do you prove something like that? Mm. Now, when you say this to a, a, a defender of the DSM system, they'll often say, oh, no, there was science. There were these studies that showed that homosexual, homosexuality wasn't a mental disorder. But actually what they were were studies that showed that other than homosexuality, gay people didn't have anything wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that's incorrect. <laughs> I'm trying to say that, you, you know, you have to assume your conclusions. Well, this gets back to the very, very fundamental point, that it's only a disease with respect to one's surroundings. In other words, it's only a dysfunction in a setting where you are dysfunctional. So for a gay person in a deeply homophobic society, it's a kind of misery, I suppose, from the persecution, but as soon as you you know, open people's minds about uh, gay normalcy, then it's no longer a dysfunction. Yeah. And the same thing could be said about a lot of these things, even, I mean, this is taking it to an extreme, but even schizophrenia, if you have a society where a schizophrenic is treated like a visionary, 
uh, a shaman or something like that, as some people have suggested, <laughs> might have happened or might happen in other kinds of cultures, then maybe even schizophrenia is not a dysfunction, right? It's you oh, become sure. an honored witch doctor or something. For sure. I mean, look at read read the book of Ezekiel, <laughs> and 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 consider what he did, and 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 the report of what he did. I mean, the guy the guy was completely bizarre, and he was doing really. <laughs> strange things and having frank hallucinations and thought disorders and i mean the guy qualified now now how many christian saints do you think might be diagnosed with schizophrenia today well, you know there's 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 a study somebody else should do <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i, I mean yes it, it, even with schizophrenia but let's take a less uh, inflammatory example and here i am being less inflammatory for a change <laughs> don't tell anybody um but, you know, a less inflammatory example might be major depressive disorder. Now, there is no question that there are people out there who, for reasons that simply defy explanation and uh, have, have a debilitating uh, inability to function, that they, 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 and, and some of the symptoms are sadness and feelings of guilt and physical torpor and stuff like that. Um, but... There are also, if you look at the diagnostic criteria for major depression, and, and this is, of course, the problem, they encompass many more people than that. And those of us who work in clinic uh, know that a lot of the people who come in who qualify for the major depressive disorder diagnosis are actually worried and upset and depressed about real material conditions uh, that they can even articulate. They can tell you what they're worried about. And a lot of what they're worried about are things like how they're going to pay for their kids' education or how they're going to um, both work and take care of their children or how they're going to retire. And I would say, I would add to that list this creeping uh, awareness that thanks to climate change, uh, the whole way of life that we know might go down the tubes in a minute. And I think that that's an example of a much more diffuse kind of a of uh, pathology that is the result, at least in part, of that interaction. Uh, you know, certainly people can get depressed for situational reasons. I mean, that, that's that's obvious. I mean, people who've been laid off for a long time without of work, people who suffer the loss of a loved one, um, other crises. But then there's a kind of depression, and I am not a therapist, and so I'm just speaking totally anecdotally, that seems to descend out of the blue on people, seems to be totally debilitating, and sometimes lifts unexpectedly as well. Now that, to me, sounds more like, wow, that sounds like kind of a disease. Yeah, you know? yeah. you know what? I'm sure that's true. That's what I was trying to say before. You said it better than I. That, you know, look, the brain can undoubtedly malfunction just in the same way that a kidney or a liver can malfunction. You know, it's just a bunch of biology. So, so you don't argue that... There aren't things that go wrong in the brain that affect the mind and behavior in in very bad ways. No, of course not. I mean, it's, it's clear that that's the case. But the problem here is that nobody knows what those cases are. We, we simply don't know when a person's depression is best thought of as a autonomous brain malfunction and when a person's depression is best thought of as a reaction to... Uh, what's going on in the world, uh, and any and anywhere uh, on the spectrum in between, we don't know this. And given that uncertainty, it seems sort of unseemly to assume, as I think the DSM wants us to, that they're all the same. Now, here's an interesting story uh, that I tell in my book about what you just talked about, which is this, this, this idea that there's this depression that depends, descends out of nowhere, there's actually some evidence, at least for some people, that that form of depression, uh, which could be called melancholia, can be discerned in the same way that many medical disorders are discerned, uh, through laboratory tests, through careful clinical observation, and can be treated with the same kind of specificity that many physical disorders are. Uh, specifically, there's a group of people who are depressed, who we could call melancholics, whose cortisol levels can be assayed through blood tests and shown to be different from the rest of both the depressed population and the normal population. 
and who respond quite well to both the old style of antidepressants, the ones that were found in the 1950s, and to electroconvulsive therapy. Now, both of those treatments have their problems, but the signal on those studies is much stronger than anything else that psychiatry has with respect to depression. And a group of people proposed for the DSM-5, look, let's carve melancholia back out of the depression diagnosis, because it, and historically it was, because we have these findings. So let's, let's carve this out, and here we have a, exactly what you want, the classic form of a disease. And the DSM committee uh, responsible for this subject didn't even consider this. And by the way, the people that were proposing this were not, you know, on the lunatic fringe. They were mainstream, eminent psychiatrists from around the world. And the reason that was given for not including melancholia or even thinking about including melancholia in the DSM-5 wasn't that they were wrong. In fact, the guy on the committee who wrote to them said, I think you're right. But you have to understand this would be the only disorder like it in the DSM-5. Only one? Yeah, it would be the only disorder that had lab tests. It would be the only disorder that had a specified treatment. It, it, would, be, it, would, it would make the rest of the DSM look bad. Wow. So they did not consider it. Now, I, this is the only piece of investigative journalism that I did in this entire book. <laughs> and, by the way, I didn't go through anybody's trash. The people send me the stuff. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to claim Woodward and Bernstein here. But this is sort of a smoking gun. So you're saying that this form of depression that may be the best fit for a kind of medical model of mental illness is one thing that was excluded from the most recent version of the DSM, the DSM-5, which has just come out uh, in the past uh, month? Yes. Is that right? Uh, another thing that you talk about in your book uh, with regard to depression is uh, bereavement, that is, the old version of the DSM, the previous version, I think, and, and jump in, Gary, and correct me if I've got the facts wrong here. Uh, and I'll humiliate you when I do that. Because that's part of your well, uh, sadistic a, I'm disorder? I'm business for my colleagues. Out oh, there. I was going to try to assign you a, a sadistic uh, <laughs> oh, dysfunction. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's one thing that DSM does allow people to do, which is to really create some good gotchas for each other when arguing yes. and yes, fighting. It's, a book of, it's, it's, it's best understood as a book of insults. <laughs> But there was in the uh, DSM-4, the previous version, right, an exception carved out of the depression diagnosis for bereavement. That is, there is depression that is truly a pathology, and there's depression that is a normal reaction to a horrible situation, losing a loved one. But did you say in your book that, that in the DSM-5 there's no longer an exception for bereavement? Well, this, this is a rat's nest, uh, oh, okay. which I'll try, to, I'll try to untangle for you as best I can. Okay. Um, to go back to the scene of the original crime... The DSM-3 came up in 1980 because psychiatry was in deep trouble, this, this slumbering beast that I described before. The thing about homosexuality that we talked about before, and some other uh, fairly high-profile failures of psychiatry to top psychiatrists to agree on what mental disorders existed and how you knew that they were mental disorders and so on, led to a huge crisis of confidence by the major institutions of American public life, namely the government and the insurance industry. And they said to the psychiatrists, essentially, if you guys don't get your act together, we're not going to believe you anymore. So the DSM-3 was an attempt to solve that problem by moving to this descriptive method where they give a, a name of a disorder and the criteria by which it's going to be known to make it objective. And they did succeed in making diagnoses a little more reliable, but what they didn't do was succeed in defining how we know what a mental disorder is. And that became a problem in major depression because the people that were writing the manual knew because they, one of them had done the research showing that the criteria that they had spelled out for major depression also fit people who were in mourning. Mm -hmm. They could not be distinguished. And this was a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, mostly for the, the, the public relations issue, the confidence issue. How confident could we be in a book that can't distinguish between somebody who's sick in the way you talked about a little while ago and somebody whose wife just died. So they said, well, we really got to solve that problem. So slowly over the years, through the next, three, next two revisions, they built in this so-called bereavement exclusion, which said that if you're within two months of a bereavement, then your depression is not an illness. 
<laughs> but right? if it goes on longer than two months? Sixty-first day, you're sick. Oh, no. But day 60, you're not. Okay, well, you know, look, all these distinctions are arbitrary. It's easy to make fun of it, and it maybe should be made fun of. But, you know, whatever distinction you make, it's going to be arbitrary. A year, ten years, whatever. But the point there is that it's, it's an attempt to, um, to, to rectify the, uh, the idea of psychiatric disorder as uh, sort of a, 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 you know, a, a, a physical thing. that just happens. Like, you know, does it matter if you get lung cancer? Does it matter if you smoked? You know, so, so you have this problem, and the way they wanted to rectify this problem was by creating this exception, and let's all just pretend like it works. Well, of course it doesn't work. It's like, it's like the epicycles that astronomers built in in the Ptolemaic era to, to explain why the planets were not where they were supposed to be if they were moving in perfect circles. Uh, so there was this whole thing. If the Earth was at the center of the solar system. If the Earth is at the center of the solar system, and everything moves in a perfect circle, you know, platonic... Uh, ideal around the uh, around around the Earth, then how come you know the Big Dipper's not where it's supposed to be on <laughs> August 14th? So the answer was because the Big Dipper makes a little epicycle; it, it doubles back on itself just by coincidence, long enough to appear in the sky where it is on August 15th. Right. And so you know, Copernicus's great uh, insight wasn't just the idea of the heliocentric universe, but also elliptical orbits. Anyway, uh, it's a little astronomy lesson thrown in there. So. The, they just built this epicycle into the diagnosis, and people who are also hostile or at least skeptical of the DSM looked at that, and that's just a slow, fat-hanging curveball. And sure enough, they did research to show that there's no reason to exclude bereavement and not unemployment or foreclosure or divorce or any of the other catastrophes that happen to us. And these people said, look, what you have to do here is you have to go back to the old idea that there are depressions that are situational in nature and depressions that are what they call endogenous in nature and distinguish between them. Well, you can do that, but the problem is that the whole point of the DSM was to have a set of diagnoses that it didn't matter what caused them. So what they decided to do instead of, change, of making that change is they decided to eliminate the bereavement exclusion entirely, which means that, theoretically anyway, on the after two weeks of suffering, if you've just experienced a loss, you can be diagnosed with major depression. But what they did was they put a little footnote in, this little asterisk, and in this clause they inform uh, people using the manual that it's a normal response to really bad things that happen to you is to develop the symptoms of depression. Mm. So what they did was they, they went from a situation where the clinician was essentially forbidden to, in some cases, provide that diagnosis to a situation in which the clinician was free to provide it or not, depending on whether or not he thought what he was seeing was illness or a reaction to grief. What's the practical difference? None. I mean, you're right. <laughs> and so, so, you know, this is really important. This is, a, this is really, it's a fascinating thing, and it's really beguiling, and it, 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 it can be really enraging, too. But we have to remember something. Where the rubber hits the road... The fact of the matter is that a person who goes to a doctor or a mental health clinician because his wife just died and needs support is going to get that support. And the, the, the marvel of the DSM is that you don't have to diagnose that guy with major depression. You can diagnose him with adjustment disorder or general anything. It doesn't really matter. And you can still uh, treat him. Furthermore, the real worry here is, okay, so everybody who has a loss, is going to be majorly depressed, and now they're going to get Prozac. Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is, most of the Prozac prescriptions written, most of the antidepressant prescriptions that are written, three-quarters of them, are written without a psychiatric diagnosis of any kind. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and 80% of them are written by family docs, at, you know, after eight-minute visits. Not using the DSM. Why would they use the DSM? They don't believe it any more than the psychiatrists believe it. So I kind of thought that if people could agree on anything, it's that the DSM uh, opens the way to drug treatment yeah, for a lot well, of that's, things. It, it does in an indirect way, which I can tell you about in a second. Okay. But in terms of the actual interaction between a psychiatrist and a patient, or a family doctor and a patient, it doesn't. It, 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 it's just not uh, the, that direct of a relationship. Um, and that's why three-quarters of the antidepressant prescriptions are written in the absence of a psychiatric diagnosis. And, and look, it, it wouldn't make any sense. We have antidepressants being used to treat anxiety disorders and 
anti-anxiety drugs being used to treat psychotic disorders and anti-psychotic drugs being used to treat mood disorders. You know, the, the psychiatrists don't treat mental disorders. They treat symptoms. And I, I, by, that's not a criticism. I don't mean that in a bad way. Some psychiatrists are really good at treating symptoms. They treat hallucinations. They treat delusions. They treat uh, sadness, the anxiety. You know, they treat these things. But they're not treating mental disorders. So in that respect, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It only matters at a symbolic level, and it is really important. That kind of thing is really going to lose public confidence, uh, which is the whole point, one of the major points of the DSM is to gain confidence. But it doesn't matter uh, at at, a much more practical level. Now, I can tell you about where it does matter if you want. Sure. Okay, here's where it does matter. The DSM controls how drugs are uh, approved. And the DSM controls how research is conducted. And this is the weirdest part about the DSM. If you want to get your research funded by the National Institutes of Health, especially the National Institute of Mental Health or the Drug Abuse, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse, you're best off submitting a grant proposal tied to a DSM diagnosis. Why is that? Well, because they want to know that they're funding research that's going to contribute to making people better. And you have to say what's wrong with them in the first place. And the DSM is the book that tells you what's wrong with people. So in that respect, it controls who gets funded and therefore controls what kind of research gets done. And the second, in, in the case of drug approvals, the same is true. It's much easier to get a drug through the FDA if it's tied to a diagnosis because you need an indication. Now, there are some times, you know, you can get a drug approved to treat, you know, a specific symptom, but it's much harder. The bar set much higher for that. And drug companies want these indications to be tied to DSM diagnoses because then, well, you, you can imagine now that's how, that's how the whole system works. Um, that's where it makes a difference. Now, why is that weird? It's weird because there's no psychiatrist in his right mind who will tell you that the DSM, the diagnoses in the DSM exist. They will tell you, look, these are just useful constructs. These are ideas that we have about how symptoms group together and how populations experience symptoms. So, so what you have is an entire research and regulatory apparatus built on constructs. And since they don't exist, since they're just ideas, you have this another strange disconnect. On the one hand, you have research being done theoretically for scientific purposes, but it's being tied to categories that, from a scientific point of view, don't exist. Well, human history is full of examples like this, where we identify a category that may well be a product of our own politics or our own imagination, and then we study that category, and we, I'm going to use fancy word, we reify it. We, yes. ma- we make it real by starting to uh, attach all kinds of meaning to it and building up traditions around it. And another one, people still argue about this, but I would argue that it's a very good example is race. I mean, the idea of a black race and a white race, uh, an outgrowth of our history of slavery and relationships between Europe and, say, Africa, and then you start studying those things and you start noticing all kinds of differences and assigning more differences, and because you found differences, you now say, well, they're real, you know? But the fact is I could arbitrarily mark off a category like uh, all the white objects in my house and begin finding uh, you know, sort of spurious connections between them and begin to think that there's some essential nature, you know. And and, and you call this a, an epistemic, I think, trap. Is that the word you use? Yeah, I, I borrowed that from Steve Hyman, who used to be the head of NIMH. Yes, it's an epistemic prison. Prison. Uh, that once psychiatry, in, in various ways, I mean, sometimes it just really almost shots in the dark, decides to map out a, a new disorder and distinguish it from something that may or may not be different at all, then you start studying it, and research gets devoted to it, and people's careers get devoted to it. And and the next thing you know, you have American psychiatry. <laughs> and, you have, and you have drugs for it and everything else. Yes, and, and, and I'm glad you brought up the word reify, because that now it's on you, and I'll, but I'll use it, and I'll say that that is the problem with the DSM. If there's anything I'm hostile to about it, it's the fact that if you make a book full of name disorders and the criteria by which they should be known, of course it's going to get reified for just the same reason that you just mentioned about race. We love these categories. 
And even when scientifically we find out that there's no such, really such thing as a, as a black race or a white race, uh, the reification persists. It helps us. You know, this is, you go back to the first chapter of Genesis, you know, what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? Name mm-hmm. things. The right? animals, yeah. Yeah, make, name, name, the, name the plants and the animals. So yeah. this is something that we do. But the part of it that makes me a little buggy is that the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and the psychiatrists who defend the DSM, who honestly defend it by saying, look, it's just constructs, take no responsibility for the fact that the reification was the point of the DSM in the first place. That's why they did it. They did it because they didn't have real diseases, and they needed to make it seem like they did. (laughs) So when they complain, oh, my God, you reified our diseases, it's your fault. Don't take this book so seriously, as one of the people who, one of the writers of the DSM-4 told me. In, you know, the problem here is that everybody's taking the book too seriously. <laughs> it's like, well, who, who are you blaming here? This is your idea. And it's what you've dined out on for 35 years. And when you say dined out, I mean... I mean literally. <laughs> yeah, there's a great deal of money involved here. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, the DSM itself generates millions of dollars for the American Psychiatric uh, Association in sales. And then, of course, it uh, legitimizes all kinds of treatments that themselves form mi- minor industries or major industries, including uh, you know big pharma right. uh, projects. So, yes, tons of money. Uh, I don't know if anyone's counted it up. Depend- $110 million on the DSM, just for the DSM for sales alone. Just for the sales of the book. Yes. Right, but, but the amount but of money... The- that is generated by treatments and therapies and things like that is got to be in the billions, probably. Oh yes, I yeah. mean it's, it's safe, to, it's, and it is safe to say that whatever that number is, without it, without the DSM, uh, it is very hard to conceive of such a, uh, a, a huge industry. Now, that's only because that's how we've decided to go about it. Uh, I, I don't say that we couldn't have a thriving mental health industry with all of the uh, weaknesses and strengths of industry uh, without a D- the DSM as we know it. It's just that this is the mechanism uh, by which we do it. I, I, I said near the beginning of our interview that I would try to be the voice of fairness here, and I want to step back and try to clarify, you're not claiming that all of these things identified in the, the DSM, though they may not have a, a proven or ultimate biological basis, that they aren't problems for people, that something like what we call bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or bulimia or Asperger's or hyperactivity, that these aren't real human problems. No, and, and as anthropology, the DSM might, might work. You know, I don't know that, but because it wasn't, it wasn't made by anthropologists, and there's an awful lot of, um, you know, uh, conceptual discipline that anthropologists learn, but yes, as a, there, there are reasons to think that these descriptions have some phenomenological uh, legitimacy. <laughs> well, you as a therapist certainly must think they do, yeah? No. No? no. And the therapists, look, ask your parents. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> well, what I mean is... Therapists don't, don't really use diagnoses. Oh, I just mean phenomenological oh, legitimacy. Oh, yeah, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 look, if somebody comes in and they're telling you that they can't get out of bed except to come to the appointment, or they're all disheveled, or whatever, then the diagnostic categories, or at least the criteria within them, do cue you in to what else to ask about. So you might want to ask somebody who's looking pretty disheveled and seems to have disorganized thoughts if they hear voices. Or if somebody is... um, you know, complaining of not sleeping and not eating and, you know, feeling sort of bummed out, you might want to ask them if they're thinking about killing themselves. You know, there's no question that these groupings are suggestive. And so what do you do? Again, let's take a real simple case, uh, simple because it's very extreme. Someone comes in there, and to use the colloquial expression, they seem stark raving mad. They seem like they've got severe, what we call schizophrenia, you know, voices in the head, uh, they're dysfunctional in all kinds of ways. What do you do as a therapist? Well, it depends on the, particular, uh, on the particulars of the situation, but in general what I would do with somebody like that is I would assess how much of a crisis they're in, how, how uh, much danger they might be in, and um, I would then um, probably refer them to a psychiatrist. 
Oh, you would? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't have any. I'm not, I'm not against psychiatry. I think, as I said earlier, I think psychiatrists, good psychiatrists, know how to treat symptoms. So um, you would refer them on, and those symptoms might be treated with medications yeah. uh, and maybe institutionalization in an extreme right. now, case. Now, this is a sad thing when it comes to really severe mental illness. Part, and this really isn't the DSM's fault. The DSM is also a symptom of this. We just don't know what to do with people who have severe mental illnesses. Uh, and that's, I mean, when I say we don't know what to do, I mean that, you know, our, our institutions aren't really uh, adapted very well to people with severe mental illnesses. Our drugs, when they work, it's great, but they often don't work. Uh, and you can't predict who they're going to work for and who they're not going to work for. So there's an awful lot of uh, uncertainty when it comes to treating severe mental illnesses. But the closest we come to having any... Uh, ability at all is in definitely with severe mental illnesses is is in psychiatry. Would you say that for all our faults, for all of our cognitive errors, that we've made progress steadily? That every decade has been better than the last when it comes to treating psychological or mental problems. Mm, I think that we're, we're we've hit a plateau. Uh, I don't think we're getting better. When did, I, uh, when did we hit that plateau? And I actually think that's the consensus. I don't think I'm out on the limb with that. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, you know, at the end of my book, I have a nice interview with the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, who, uh, you know, basically goes on a litany about this very subject, that it's just not getting better, and in many ways it's getting worse. Um, I would say that that happened probably in the, in the 1960s, hmm. um, when... Uh, the, the, the first psychiatric drugs were discovered in the 1950s. And um, the people for whom psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic-oriented treatments weren't working, the severely mentally ill, all of a sudden did have uh, drugs that could help them. Now, those drugs were discovered by accident, um, and nobody still to this day really understands how they work. But that was a very, uh, that was a powerful, transformative moment. I think that it encouraged uh, an unfortunate tendency to think about mental illness as a kind of infectious disease that could be treated like with antibiotics, and it definitely contributed to the disaster of deinstitutionalization. Um, but that was a time when there was hope for people, uh, and that hope still continues for the people for whom those treatments work. But there haven't been any breakthroughs since then. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, Thomas Insel, yes. uh, director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, you know, about as powerful a position in mental health as we have in this America's country. America's psychiatrist-in-chief. Yes, exactly. Yeah, government position really heads up the preeminent institution. Yes, and by the way, let me say here, a righteous dude. Well, he, he joined you in denouncing, uh, I think, the DSM. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so I, I see why you like him. But But he, of course as a scientist, as the head of a scientific institution, would like to push all this in a deeply scientific direction, make it more biological and neurological, right? And that's where you and he part ways, true? Yes, it's true to some extent. I mean, the idea of trying to get at the neurocircuitry of the symptoms of people suffering in itself doesn't really bother me very much. I mean, ultimately what that's going to lead to is drugs. But I don't have a huge animus against drugs. Drugs and surgery and implants and things yeah, like all that. Sorts, all yeah, all sorts of things. What I have a problem with is the naivete, the philosophical naivete, sometimes willful naivete, of the approach that says that psychiatric disorder is brain disorder. And that's a direct quote from Incel. And I think that there are two problems with that. One of them, obviously, is the minority report problem. Incel believes that by the time, for instance, we see symptoms of ADHD, um, it's too late. He believes that ADHD is a problem of brain maturation and that that problem can be spotted prior to the emergence of symptoms. Now, I probably don't have to spell out for you why that's a little frightening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one problem. Identifying people as sort of uh, predestined or headed towards some condition. For yeah, the, you know, you want to talk about reification. Yeah. I mean, you, to reify the brain, and this leads to the second problem. 
human nature is malleable. While there are certainly some constants, and I wouldn't want to be the person who decides what's constant and what changes. There's no question that it's malleable. I mean, we've been around for, what, 150,000 years. We only have to go back 500 years to a time when the understanding of human being did not include equality, did not include universal dignity, it did not include universal justice. The idea that your life was yours to live and a quest for meaning and all of these things that we inhabit like a fish inhabits water weren't even a part of how people understood themselves 500 years ago. It's a blink of an eye. So what happens as we become more and more accustomed to this idea that we are nothing more or less than what our brains do? I believe this is a problem because there's a feedback loop. We become, in some ways, what we're told we are. And there needs to be a recognition within neuroscience and within psychiatry that one of the things that's going on here is informing people about what human beings are. And eventually we become, you know, this could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I don't really look forward to the day when we become the people of the molecule. <laughs> I think there's all sorts of problems with that. So that's where I part ways with Dr. Insel. Uh, on the other hand... <laughs> That's sort of a philosophical concern, a long-term concern. On the short term, if what they're going to do is do away with these bogus categories and get to what they can really see, as long as it's transparent, what we're doing here is finding symptoms. The neurocircuitry of worry, the neurocircuitry of fear, and assuming that this is technologically possible, and being transparent about what they know and what they don't know, especially when they give us drugs, which, by the way, they have a terrible track record of doing. Every day in psychiatrist's office today, people are being told that their depression is the result of a biochemical imbalance. Now, no psychiatrist believes that. No, any psychiatrist who's well-informed knows that that's a myth. So the serotonin hypothesis... It's a myth. Is a myth. It's a myth, of course. And I'm not just saying that because I don't like it. It's, I'm saying that because... It was twenty, fifteen years ago. Now it was abandoned. Now are you, so, sa- are you saying by saying that? Are you also saying that the class of drugs that includes Prozac, the serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, that they don't work at all? And no, no, are... no, no, no. Of course they okay. they do something. Uh-huh. Nobody knows what. Uh-huh. I mean, this is a really scary thing, right? They they change the metabolism of serotonin at the synapse. There's no question about it. And and but why does that change mood? Nobody knows. This is totally empirical. This myth was manufactured, actually, in 1965. Uh, there was, you know, a, a very important paper that came out talking about, well, we can sort of reverse engineer the effect of antidepressants and say that depression is caused by a biochemical imbalance. The funny part of that paper is they had the wrong neurotransmitter. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but this is, it's been a very powerful myth, but it, it doesn't, uh, you know, my other book, Manufacturing Depression, it really does spell out how this myth got built. And so this is, to me, pernicious. Nobody, no psychiatrist should tell any patient that that's true because it isn't. What they should say is, you know, these drugs will change the way that your brain works. It probably changes the structure of your brain because that would appear to be the case. And we don't really know exactly what it does, why it's a black box. We change serotonin metabolism and a different mood comes out of the other side. Mm-hmm. but it might make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't know if you'll be able to get off of it, because many people can't. And it will probably confuse you as to who you are, because your life will be changed profoundly by taking this drug every morning. But you might find that's worthwhile. Now, to me, that's going to lower the number of people who are willing to take the drug. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like that's, that's advertising. It's not advertising. But I think there's still quite a few people that would take that. Well, if the alternative is wanting to kill yourself. Yes, or just not being able to function, or just Mm -hmm. being upset all the time. Yeah. You know, when it comes to these things, I'm a total libertarian when it comes to drug use. I, I think all drugs should be legal. And people should have the right to change their consciousness as they see fit. But they shouldn't be doing it based on any more than a person taking heroin should be told this drug is not addictive. <laughs> People who, who take Prozac should not be told that they're 
taking it's like taking insulin for diabetes. What's your drug of choice? My drug of choice, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I still, I still would, if I, if I had my choice in in a in a legitimately legal world, I'd use marijuana. Uh huh. But you know, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm 56 years old. You know, my my drug days are a lot of them are behind <laughs> me. I, I find it I find it way too taxing. <laughs> you know, there's there's a movement afoot and has been for for some time now to reopen investigation of uh, what were called psychedelic drugs oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. as therapeutic tools. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, you know, now here's a plug for my other, another plug for my other book, Manufactured Depression, which I tell the whole story of the connection between LSD and antidepressants, which are intimately related, uh, because LSD was the key to discovering serotonin in the brain, um, and the, the importance of serotonin in the brain, I should say. Um, and I think that, you know, the model of using a powerful consciousness-altering drug to change people's experience of themselves in the world in such a way as to, among other things, change their mood, is a totally viable model. It actually makes sense. And to the extent that it's empirically been investigated, uh, in, especially in recent studies, ketamine, psilocybin, LSD are all shown to have um, powerful antidepressant properties. Now, there's some people that are falling all over themselves to try to, you know, elucidate the biochemistry of this, but well, go ahead, you know, that's fine. But the fact of the matter is, a, a single dose of MDMA may be worth two years of Prozac. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's a very promising thing. The problem is, where's the money? Uh, where's the money in a drug that people are going to take once, twice, three times in their lifetime? <laughs> You're saying that industry is not going to get into this line of... <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I'm not just saying that. That's true. I mean, uh, the people that are doing this research, most of that research is being sponsored by the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which is a very, very interesting organization, a nonprofit drug company. And they are, you know, through contributions and other forms of fundraising, are putting together the millions of dollars that are necessary to study, for instance, the effect of MDMA on post-traumatic stress disorder. MDMA is ecstasy right? Uh, on post-traumatic stress disorder. And nothing against the drug companies, but they're, they're out to make money. Why would they investigate a drug that they don't have a patent on for a purpose that, you know, they, even if they charged $100 a pop, <laughs> they, you know, when you could be selling Prozac at $100 a month to people for the rest of their lives? By the way, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies might be better known to some in my listening audience as MAPS. MAPS, yeah. In fact, they've moved out there. They're in Santa Cruz, I think. Yes, so they're in my local listening audience. The perfect, the perfect place. <laughs> you know, we've talked about uh, the DSM, and uh, which, again, I'm going to repeat for people who've joined us in the middle of our conversation, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, of the American Psychiatric Association, the Handbook of Mental Disorders, in other words. Um, We've been talking about it as though it, it, it has, in a sense, imposed uh, all of these diagnoses and these conditions on the public. But you point out in your book that the public, in turn, has embraced some of these diagnoses, and some people are very attached to them, and they make a big difference for some people. Two examples you give in the book. I just want to quickly uh, talk about these, you know, just to paint a more complete picture is it gender... Gender identity disorder. Gender identity disorder. Yeah, this is identified be... in the, uh, the DSM, and, and, you know, it's that, uh, you know, if I can say it in real plain language, that feeling that you were born into the wrong gendered body, and maybe you need a sex change operation. Yeah. Because it's in the DSM, in fact, people can get insurance coverage, if they have the right policy, for a sex change operation, and that's very important to some in the transgendered community. So to dump that from the DSM... They uh, were very alarmed at that prospect. Right, and, and it didn't get dumped. And, you know, so then you had this really interesting phenomenon of uh, the same people, some of the same people who were imploring the, the APA to drop homosexuality from the DSM were imploring them to keep gender identity disorder in the DSM. And the other example you talk about uh, is Asperger's. Yes. Uh, when did Asperger's even enter the DSM? Asperger's was born in 1994, uh, and it, it is now uh, gone. It had a very short life. It was in the DSM four, and it's gone from the five. Yes, it was. So yes, so for 20 years, Asperger's disorder was, in my view, maybe the most successful diagnosis ever. Because let's think about 
what a disease really is. As I said earlier, it's not really a form of suffering that is caused by some kind of biological uh, problem. We'd like to think it is, but in fact what it is, is it's a form of suffering that as a society we decide to devote health care resources to. <laughs> and as time has evolved, we've decided often to open that gate for disorders that seem to have a biological cause. But what Asperger's disorder did was it opened the gates to resources for a group of people who, first of all, had never recognized themselves as a group, and secondly, whose pathology uh, was one of about belonging. <laughs> so it actually created an identity for people who didn't have one, and a community for people whose problem was that they couldn't have a community. And it opened up resources treatment, it opened up special education resources, it opened up the gates to compassion and tolerance and, and, and acceptance and some of the most precious resources that we have. And it was taken away. And in, in fact, the, the really sort of, to me, the, the, the really um, important part of that story is that when the American Psychiatric Association discovered, because of all the protest against taking away Asperger's, that Asperger's, people with Asperger's had formed their identities around the disorder, they were surprised. They didn't know this had happened. Now, I find that, I find that, if somebody hadn't told me that, I, would, I wouldn't believe it. I mean, but, but the psychiatrist in charge of this diagnostic group told me that. Now, has Asperger's been... I mean, has it been erased or has it been absorbed and renamed uh, well, under a broader umbrella? Nobody what? knows the answer to that question. Because yet. now there's this autistic spectrum disorder? Yeah, there's something called an autistic spectrum disorder, and depending on who you listen to, that will nicely absorb all of the people who had Asperger's, but will take away their name, yeah. which is not inconsiderable, given our conversation before about reification. Yeah. Um, or it will exclude a lot of them. My own feeling is that they have clearly tightened the, the, the criteria for getting into the autism spectrum. Relative to the old diagnoses, it's going to be harder to get that diagnosis. And frankly, I think that was part of the point. There was a, I don't know, maybe it's not fair to call it embarrassment, but there was unease within, the, within psychiatry about the numbers of people who were getting diagnosed this way. And interestingly, part of the problem here was that as the diagnosis gathered steam, and more, especially kids qualified for special ed uh, for it, the resources available to people with that diagnosis diminished. And the resources available to autistic people didn't. And so part of the rationale, and this is the stated rationale for this change, is to make sure that people who are at the higher functioning end of the autism spectrum, i.e. people with Asperger's, will be entitled to services at the same level as people with, uh, with what are now going to be other forms of autism. Mm. So there's this, frankly, political uh, um, resource-related uh, tactical, I guess you could call it, uh, approach to, 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 uh, to revising the DSM. Um, well, this is a fascinating story and maybe a book-worthy project in itself. What it is like for a population to suddenly gain an identity by virtue of a psychiatric category, and then maybe to lose that identity. Right, right. It's really interesting. And, and uh, you know, the fact that the APA hasn't anticipated this question is just an example of how it has lost sight of what the meaning of its own work is. But, on the other hand, even if they haven't lost sight of the question, it would still be a huge mystery. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, and, you know, you could look at that as just sort of an interesting chapter in intellectual history. You could look at it as a public health experiment being conducted on <laughs> unwilling participants. Wow. <laughs> I suppose you, it depends on how you want to look at it. Um, but it does point to maybe an unintended consequence of a manual of mental illness, which is the comfort or the stigma of giving things names and in some cases, it actually is a consolation to be named and to talk about something concrete, even if it is a construct. That's exactly right. And, that's, and that is, a, a, I think, a legitimate function of a, of a psychiatric taxonomy. And, and here you get into this question of, well, 
it's a sort of the placebo question. So if it provides that, and the only reason that it provides it is because there seems to be some kind of legitimacy to the name, that it isn't arbitrary, that it isn't a construct. So if it provides it, and we know it's a construct, does it still work? <laughs> the great concern that Alan Francis had, and the reason he and I were engaged in a sort of uh, argument throughout the two or three years I was involved with him, and I write about this in my book, is because he feels, uh, and, and I'm not saying he's wrong, I just don't know, he feels that taking away the legitimacy of the DSM, the, the sort of mythology behind it, um, deprives people of exactly what you just talked about. That if they don't feel that those labels mean anything, if they think they're just arbitrary, then they lose the goods that they brought them. Now, I, I you know, you can tell from this conversation, I, I favor transparency over everything. And that may be reckless. I, I don't know. I, honestly, it hasn't worked out that way in my life. But, and I'm a therapist, so this is what I do for a living. So I, I will admit that my view of things, these things can be constrained. But I would say that this is also an interesting uh, and unanswered question. You know, the way Francis put it was, uh, you know, you don't want to pull the curtain back too far on this thing. Uh, he talked about it as a noble lie. If there's a central character in your book, it's certainly him. Yeah. Uh, he is a very eminent psychiatrist who was the lead author, would you say, of the DSM-4? Yeah, he was, he, was the chair, he was the chair of that committee that made the DSM-4. And yet deeply critical of the DSM-5, uh, but really comes off as fascinatingly ambivalent in your book. Uh, you quote him uh, in the book as saying, to you. He's, he's, he's redressing you, actually. Uh, yes, he spent a lot of time doing that and continues, <laughs> continues to do so. <laughs> he's saying, uh, you know, to you, Gary, a lot of false beliefs help people cope with life. So don't throw grenades unless you know what you are doing, Gary. Don't throw grenades. There are some traditions, if you fuck with, he trailed off. Well, yeah. well Gary, you've gone and fucked with it. But, <laughs> Can you say that on your radio station? <laughs> uh, my listeners will hear a bleep. <laughs> but but people who tune in online will hear the unexpurgated version. Well, good. I mean, I thought that was a very powerful moment, wasn't it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just wanted to thank you for this interview. It's uh, yeah. It's been really interesting. Okay, well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate your being uh, interested enough to, uh, you know, interview me based on what I actually wrote. <laughs> Gary Greenberg is the author of The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I will be back next week. And you can always go to our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, to check out past shows and learn more. Or you can subscribe via iTunes. If you do that, you might as well give us some stars and a little review, don't you think? Anyway, so long until next week.